Can you hear me, Phil? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, good. Sorry about that. These fucking computers, hey. <laughs> Tell me. The problem was like, when you know if you have a speed device hooked up to your computer and if you've it opened in another window, it'll read that off like say YouTube. So then it won't operate Zoom. So I had to close down everything and restart. I'm like, oh god. So sorry about that. That's okay. So How's how it? are we doing? I'm not too bad, man. How are you? Yeah, good. Yeah. Were you were you were you were recording? Sorry? You were away recording for a while. Yeah. Um I went to Prague. Um, nice. to record and mix this album at Sono with uh, Chantelle Actor, somebody I've worked with a few times. She's um, she's Dutch but lives in Belgium. Yeah. I've made a few albums with her. <clears throat> so I uh, did that, got stranded in Prague for 24 hours because the flight got cancelled. That was fun. Lovely. Um, but, yeah, came back and then there's this band, um, Starlight Campbell, who were kind of blues um, or they started out being a kind of blues duo. Okay. Husband and wife team. She plays bass. And I kind of met them three or four years ago. And, um, you know, they sent me albums, we talk, and I was going to mix this new album. And then, you know, I got ill a few months ago with this prostate thing. So I had to cancel. And then they were over here doing a mini tour and they played Ill Pie in um, Twickenham. Right. So I went out to see that. So that was my actual kind of going to a gig was 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 that, which was um yeah, lengthy yeah process to for for an you know a two hour set to we drive around the M twenty five and stuff, but uh, nice to get out. Um, yeah. yeah. So no, the Prague thing went well, but since then yeah, it's just been you know adjusting to autumn, um, dealing with plumbing issues and life in general so the joy yeah, of life all good the health's better though is it yeah yeah no the, the whole prostate thing kind of got itself soy with the operation so we covered well from that um so yeah all good good man that's mm. good that's good to hear that's good to hear you know it's funny i was listening to uh was pink floyd at wembley and i was like because normally you don't like live records so shit and I was like, who engineered that? <laughs> and then I look at the back, it was like, oh, the line notes. It seemed that you did it. I was like, oh, all right, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah, Dark Side of the Moon, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I never knew you did that one. Yeah, no, it was a last minute um, project. I, I, I wrote about it in my book because we had, you know, I'd worked solid for about two months, you know, oh. every day, 12, 18 hour days. And I had this day off and I was down here in Sussex. <clears throat> and um, get a phone call at like nine in the morning, you know, having got back at about three in the morning. And um, it was Penny Hansen at, at Ireland saying, right, you know, you're at Wembley this afternoon recording Pink Floyd, you know. It was like, hang on, That's hang on, you know. And um, Brian Humphreys, who was their kind of main engineer, um, he was going to record it. But they had lots of PA problems um, when they were doing you know, because they always spend a couple of days setting up. Yeah. And um, the previous day they'd had um, kind of PA problems and it was decided that Brian would do the PA mix and then I would come in and pretty much, you know, I was told you, you just need to watch the levels, you know, because a lot of it was already set up. Um, but obviously it's never quite like that, uh, especially on something like, you know, we were. I think it was probably 16 track. 
Right, right. It, you know, it wasn't like multi multi track. I get yeah. When you're recording a live gig like that, it's pretty tricky. But yeah, so it was out of the blue. Didn't want to do it, and then <laughs> you know, went back up to town, got a cab, got out to and recorded it. And it was um, it was used for some BBC thing at the time, and then it it got put away. And then do you remember about? Oh, it's probably eight years ago now, or something. But Floyd started to re-release a lot of. Other, you know, yeah. versions of record, and they found these these tapes because I was out at his barge, and um, they'd found these tapes, and they said, "Oh yeah, we, you know, we 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 found this recording. Well, you know, we'll probably work on it, and you know, put it out." I've never, I'd never got a copy of it, but it's nice to know that it's that it, that it is around. Yeah, so they did it last. They, I think they put out like eight years ago, but then they did it this year again too. Like, uh, that, yeah, yeah, for the fiftieth, it was like this live. It was it was a white white cover, and had, like it looked like Dark Side of the Moon, and I was just like, because you know, like live records, like none of them don't really sound very good. I'm not a big fan of live records, unless it's a jazz band or something. Like that, but like they normally sound pretty like meh, but that sounds really good. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that is an army when you work with the Floyd thing. They have such a you know, they just take over. Um, yeah. Put in there. You know, when I, I worked with Gilmore in, I don't know, 2003 or something like that, um, we, he did this concert at the Festival Hall, um, all acoustic, the choir with the sound ground, but all the instruments were acoustic, um, apart from a little bit of his electric guitar. And um, we, we recorded that and filmed that. And the quality that that DVD has, that they're just genius out at um, Astoria, you know, where they all work. Yeah. They could just take something. I mean, obviously, you know, we, we try our best, you know, we got a good, clean recording. But I have a, you know, a monitor mix of it, and it's like, wow, I'm really pleased with that. And then, you know, three months later, when they've worked on it at the barge and tweaked this and smoothed that, and, and it suddenly becomes like, wow. <laughs> Quality of this is just fantastic. So they yeah. just do everything to the kind of nth degree. Was that was that the the Gilmore gig where Bowie turned up? I don't even know. No, it wasn't Bowie. It was um, was it Robert Wires? Oh, um, okay. He he sang the comfortably numb when they did that track. It was Robert Wyatt who, oh, okay. who was doing that. Um, it was I. I it, they have it every year. It's a it runs for a couple of weeks and, and somebody basically puts on a collection of, of artists. So it came within that. Oh, right. Is it like that South Bank Festival? Yeah, I remember. Exactly. I went to see Van Dyke Parks at that. He yeah. curated the whole thing. That was, that was quality. That was something. Oh, anything with Van Dyke Parks is always good. Like, Yeah, no, he's a real hero of mine. I think the guy's fantastic. Yeah, he's a fucking... Total legend, like just like I totally underrated, you know. People kind of, oh, yeah, when you kind of say him, they don't really, they all, I think they associate him with Brian, which kind of, yeah, they don't realize how good he is on his own. Yeah, that Discover America album, I thought was was absolutely fantastic and just so, I mean, off the wall, but considering the technology at the time, all the things they were doing with the 16 track, it was pretty impressive stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah, what was it like, like? The vibe of recording back, like not not just recording, but like the studios and everything. The vibe back then, as opposed to now, because it's it's like. Well, I mean, it was incredibly fast. Yeah, and that was the you know one of the the main things. I mean, you'd get in, 
you'd get everyone set up I and mean, w- within an hour or two you expect to be kind of you know running things through so there weren't those I mean that started more in the 80s but there weren't those hours of getting the drum sound and you know it was you know we all just you know drummers we were working with good players you know they had their kit was tuned well yeah we were used to the rooms most of the time they were worked in although when i went to america in the 70s to working places each one was a a new experience you know but uh, you work fast um pretty much just capturing it you expected to get quite a bit done in a day more than that- just like a drum track and yeah bass with a guy guitar or something. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know we Doing a lot of those singles in the early 70s, I mean, it was a little bit like a factory, but you would do a 10 to 1 session where you would put down the backing track for the A side and the B side. Afternoon from kind of 2 till 5, the vocals, any other overdub, and then, you know, 7 till 10, you mixed. So um, <laughs> tracks like Can the Can with Susie Quatcher or some of the sweet stuff I did, you know that was in at ten in the morning, ten or eleven at night. You were walking away with a finished, finished record. It was it was very fast, and and all those um, you know, on that other level like the Van Dyke Parks thing. But I would imagine that they worked fast. I mean, Little Fig, which he had with uh, all those guys, they they just didn't mess about really. You know, they're great players. They just wanted to kind of party and play. So <clears throat> it wasn't that era of spending hours on getting sounds or you know they they delivered great sounds we weren't paranoid with screens as much as we became you know i remember recording little feet with them in a kind of semicircle with only screens and half screens in front of richie hayward you know everyone else wide open with it um because you're trying to capture something and leakage can be a good thing you know yeah it made the rooms were in were nice and it would make things sound glued together and bigger you know it wasn't all these little compartments it's like you know like those motown records like they're all close to each other yeah. like james james is like we said the yeah. drummer and stuff like that like all that a tiny, tiny room you know? yeah yeah so we were i mean island studio two where we did a lot of stuff that was a you know that's a tight little room you know you could get maybe if you cleared out all the stuff push the piano back you might be able to get like maybe 15 string players in there but it was really it was really a five-piece band kind of size you know so drums bass guitar keyboard you know um and you couldn't screen i mean you had you had to live with leakage it was kind of cool but we worked fast so and we weren't thinking of replacing as much. I mean, that this is an early 70s period, the first half of it. You weren't, you were trying to capture stuff and you knew that, yeah, you could add stuff and you could replace something, you could repair. But it wasn't kind of where everyone's head was at. It was just to get a performance. And I mean, there's stuff I worked on back then that has musical errors in it. Yeah. But, you know, there's Robert Palmer stuff, there's... You know, there's a Bowie track where there's a bass note thing. You know, there's stuff that happened which people didn't really think was important enough, you know, to to, to change it. Um, It wasn't as easy to change as it is now. And there were risks, you know, always with dropping in and getting that energy to say all of that stuff. I think we prefer to edit between takes than try and 
drop in repairs. Right. I think it adds to it, though. You know, like those little kind of things. There's a thing on I Still Believe in You. Uh, yeah, that Beach Boy song, I Still Believe in You, where it's like there was a horn and it got recorded on the track, like, bit a bit. And they were like, oh, shit, we'll just keep it in. And it adds to the track. You know, like these little <laughs> things, the mistake become a part of the song. Yeah, so yeah. then it's not a mistake anymore. It's like a kind of intertwined thing. Totally, totally true. I mean, that feedback on No Woman, No Cry, the live version of that, um, at the time when I was mixing it, really bugged me. It's like, <laughs> Bit of feet, and, and you know, I thought in the early 2000s when Pro Tools was around, yeah, you know, if you ever remix that album, you could, yeah, you could lose that now. But in fact, it's something that I now really wait, um, to hear, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a kind of great moment now rather than at the time. It was like, ah, yeah, that's such a problem of like modern records and kind of making like I just know by the way me me making stuff myself you know you kind of sometimes if you you're you spend so much time at it you can like take the whole soul out of it yeah but like it sounds good and it sounds clear but it's like soulless and I think a lot of modern music sounds just oddly soulless it's just too good it's all yeah. it's all too perfect you know everything's perfect in time the tuning's all there everything's so it's all just like this thing uh, it's hard to get into it sometimes, be inside it and feel that there's a musician or somebody the other side of this playing. Yeah, it's yeah. just too good, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I guess has been happening. I mean, it was happening in the 80s, while well, it took me a long time to <clears throat> kind of adjust to the 80s. Um, but in the last 20 years, really, I mean, with, with the technology and with the way music, pop thing has, has taken over. Yeah. It seems to be the main... You know, not that I listen to an awful lot of modern music, I must admit. It's, it's <laughs> trying to find it, you know what I mean? I hear so much stuff that leaks through from the hours. It's like, wow, it's, you know. Do you, do you think do you think music matters as much? Not individually, because it can matter. I know it matters a lot to you and probably a lot to me and other yeah. people. But like as a whole, do you think it no. matters much in society? Yeah, no. I don't think so. I think it's just part of now all the stuff that people have and you've got so much of it now and it's yeah. all free now um so it's um yeah it's different to that feeling in the 50s 60s probably 70s i think it changed it started to change in the 80s you know it became more of an industry and making these you know i know we've always had the um you know put together bands whether it was like well i mean sweet were a proper band but you know some of the Millie Vanilli and all that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, I think in the 80s, that became much more... Well, that was the start of it, really. You know, up until that point, most of the... They were bands and artists who were touring, making records, you know, playing that whole system. In the 80s, it was more manufactured style. With the SSL as well, you know, you suddenly had a desk that you could recall. Record companies could ask for a different mix now because they knew you could get back to the old one and then change something, which yeah. before that, you couldn't do it. They were one-off mixes most of the time. Yeah. So it was um, it was like, yeah, we can do another mix, but it'll be different rather than <laughs> exactly the same plus, a bit more hi-hat, you know? Yeah. So, so it you... started in the 80s, but... Um, you know, it's it's just I guess in the last twenty years, it's for me, it's got a bit worse. I mean, the nineties I liked. You see, I thought the nineties for some yeah, reason it's great. really interesting because you got out of a lot of that eighties 
made records with a big drum sound. Yeah, it's a drum sound. All of that stuff. Um, And it seemed very eclectic. You know, there were so many different kind of styles around, people stealing that and putting it with this. And so I thought the the 90s were actually very exciting. Um, But the 80s were really, you know, disappointing for me. I mean, I I was, uh, you know, I think I might have told you before, but I I was leaving in 86. Yeah. yeah it's weird because like my my generation are probably the last generation who kind of were like super invested in music like you know like we we could have one cd we couldn't just have every cd so yeah, yeah. even that one cd that the songs were like i fucking hate that song you'd kind of listen to it or actually tape sorry i had tape so you couldn't be arsed forward with it. So you'd listen to it. And then that song became kind of like, you're like, oh, I actually really like that song. So you ha- you invested more time in it because you actually yeah, yeah. bought it. Whereas now you can just, you're done. Oh, it's the next it's thing. all just kind of stream. And also people don't, I don't think people listen to music uh, in the site. Certainly not. I mean, I don't even really listen to it that way now, but I do still head in that direction. If I put an album and I'll put it on and play both sides as an album, you know, I don't cherry pick different tracks. I don't, stream and just you know i was playing what's going on the other day oh my god i was playing that yesterday i mean it's just remarkable i was just sitting there going this guy you know james jameson the lyrics the whole vibe of it the editing and the cross you know it's just and that was a might have been 24 track but i mean it could have been 16 but just beautiful stunning album such an amazing record i I always say it's like the motown pet sounds i always think yeah, incredibly sad though, in a way, that's yeah. just old. Yeah, and you know, the world is now, I would say, probably even more just like than it was in 73. And it was pretty great, you know, it's easy to look back and, and people think that it was all so great. And you know, in the 60s, you had Vietnam War, which you know, ran into the 70s. It wasn't all peace and love, and everything's great, you know, the 60s mm. violent. Uh, you know, with the American shootings and the race stuff going on. I mean, it's never, you know, all, some things have always been there. But, um, no, what's going on? It, I say it's sad because lyrically it's just like, what an album. Oh, it's, to it's get a... all the wonderful playing for a minute, you know, I mean, the musicians are just incredible. But yeah. Lyrically, it's, it's such a beautiful album. That's yeah. Incredible. Like every, everything about that record is like, just brilliant. They did, they did a... They remastered it for the was it for the fiftieth. Yeah, it must have been the fiftieth. And mm. they, they did it. Got Kevin Gray to do the vinyl, like dude, the remaster of it that came out this year. Well, it came out in America last year. It's oh, dude, it sounds incredible. There's one done. The they did a sneaky thing where they get the European one. They got some other guy to master it, but they kind of said it was the same. They didn't say it was done by Kevin Gray. So I had to buy it from America to get the kind mm. of proper. But oh my god, it's the best I've ever heard it sound. Sounds incredible, like. You know, and like like yourself, I put that on the other day because I was like, "Oh man, I'm sick of all this news." <laughs> I was like, "I'm sick yeah. of all this news." And I just put that on. I was like, "Just you know," yeah. and like you said, sad. It's sad because it's like how much nothing changes. It's the no, same. and I mean, you know, I come from that you know period because I was kind of seventeen or whatever, sixty-seven or whatever. But we kind of thought you could change the world, you know, with music and with this whole if you like, alternative hippie, whatever, you know, well, that revolution got kind of blown. Yeah. What's going on is a perfect example of of, where you've had that for a few years, but there's this kind of um, 
yearning. I mean, the guy is just, you know, yearning for just some some peace, some peace, some safety, less violence, just, hey, brother, you know, let's just sort this, you know, and that was yeah. 73. And the kind of dream that was, was, was breaking. You know? but, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just don't now see how that, atmosphere that was around probably it was probably like a 10-year period i guess with, with how that kind of thing can ever um be either rekindled or a new version because with, social media is so brilliant but it's also a nightmare <laughs> you know um so much information out there so much bad you know the media throwing all this bad stuff at you all the time where there's yeah. nothing you can do i mean now yeah. the blanket coverage you know it's just 24 hours for israel well you know there's nothing we can do it's not a recent thing this goes back 40 50 60 years yeah um and it's so divisive it's like you yeah, have to pick yeah. a side pick a side yeah. you're like dude come on man no it's, and they always you know every, the west always do the same it was you know back israel so that's all kind of fine um yeah it's just like anyway escape you know. yeah that's uh, you know like the funny like about that kind of optimism you're saying in about in the 60s is like i always thought there was kind of like that in the 90s you know when i was kind of growing yeah. up i felt that kind of optimism yeah and then it slowly just drove off a cliff and it's true i mean that's probably why the night is say felt very kind of positive to me i mean i was working around and i was around rollo quite a bit but it, it just felt as if there was this yeah, like a movement. And a movement, kind of some fun going on and people pushing, you know. It all seemed very positive then. After what I say, what I thought the 80s was such a, in, in many ways, such a stagnant period. But um, 90s were, were good for that. But, um, yeah, I mean, where it's going, you know. You know yeah, and there's like, that's a weird thing. Like, there is no... Not? There's no like political music. Like there's nothing like that. Not that there isn't it, but even if there is it, it doesn't actually get. And there's no leader. Yeah. There's no one saying, "Okay, onwards, guy. This is what we need." You know, they're just doing the political thing. Like you know, Biden and over here, we back Israel, and we've just said that we're willing to you know take it further, whatever that means. The rest of Europe is kind of going, you know, let's just leave them to it. You know, trying to play it down. <laughs> but it's all just like, there's no one that's kind of going, what we need. I mean, look at America. America politics is a joke. We're oh, pretty, my God. We're pretty kind of out there now. Yeah. You know, we imported all that shit, too. Yeah. We imported all their, their like, their left-right shite over to here. I don't remember when I was a kid growing up. Maybe it was, but I was a kid and I didn't care. But I don't I don't remember that, like, thing. If someone was conservative or or left wing, you could be you could be friends with them. Now it's like yeah. if you're not on my side, you like you have to agree on every single issue down to the minutest detail. And it's like, dude, come on. I think that's been done by over here. You know, probably Brexit thing divided the country quite a bit. Uh, in America, you had the um, Trump or his thing, the COVID thing. You know, everyone in a way had these opportunities to take a side and be very yeah opinionated about you know what their beliefs are so yeah um but you know <laughs> the co the COVID thing was weird because it was like yeah, that was just weird i i i was like 
people were just so crazy with like during that period. They were just crazy. If you had any dissenting view on COVID, it was like, you're a fucking nut. Like it's like, what the fuck? Easy, bro. You know, it's like it's just weird. I thought I thought that was weird. It was uh, it, it was, was just, very weird. It, it was, was a strange time. Yeah. And I think we'll pay for it for quite a while. It'll take a I mean, I think it's gonna take years to in a way sort out Brexit or recover from Brexit and also to recover from COVID, I think. Hopefully yeah. we don't have too many other major disasters in the next few years where we can actually catch up with this. But if you know, it, at the moment it almost feels, doesn't it, this is a kind of onslaught of I know you know, in this country or another country, you know, there's a kind of a flood here and a kind of earthquake there and a couple of wars going on there and and you just kind of you can't really i mean i try to avoid it i guess but it's impossible isn't i know it? i know in your head these things come in and you, and they say after all these years jesus you know, we're just so stupid i mean mankind's desperate to just destroy i, I know i know <laughs> like i was i was going somewhere walking through a field the other day and there was like these lovely cows you know they were coming up to me and they're licking my hand and stuff like that and i just thought you know the worst thing in the world is actually people like because every what well, every other animal get on grand and whatever we just fuck up everything uh, we've, we've, we've been a very um you know very clever animal but yeah uh, i think if we carry on like this our days are definitely numbered one way or the other for sure it's for just, sure um, but you know there's people in america um, I think it's the kind of Christian far right who who are actually kind of pushing for Armageddon. You know what I mean? They're kind of, hey, bring it on, and we get the second coming. <laughs> but there's all these people that are almost like willing this world to just implode because then out of the ashes will come, you know, Jesus. Well, it's kind of all, everything's kind of imploding because you've kind of like, on, on, so that you have that end, but then you have the other end of like crazy woke shit and you're just like, dude, <laughs> shut the fuck up. Really? Like, who cares? Like, just who cares about all that stuff? So it's like two, there's two, four, yeah, there's like, some all important these, issues out here. Yeah. 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 You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. You know, but that's, but that's like, I think that's why music is so powerful because music actually can bring people together. It's the only thing yeah. I think that can bring people together. Like, and I'm not saying the only thing, but it's such a powerful thing. It still is. You know, and it's, it's, it's such, it's so devalued. It's shocking. Like it's the, it's the yeah, most powerful thing that's think, devalued. Yeah. I think that's been done because it's become free. Um, because, I mean, I have a real problem with Universal, but the way Universal have kind of bought up everyone and run it like yeah. a conglomerate kind of ICI company or something. Um, and I, I think it has been devalued hugely. I mean, it has been, hasn't it? Because, I mean, if you, the days of kind of going as an artist to a record um, company and asking for basically a loan, you're asking for a deal, you give me this money as a bank kind of, I'll make a record, you you take um, quite high percentage, 80% or something goes back to the record company. Yeah. And those those days have all gone. You know, you don't get those kind of budgets anymore. You don't get deals as such. A&R departments in record companies tend to be scouring the net and looking at who's had a million hits from their own yeah. thing that's been put up there. Then they have approach them and say, right, would you, you know, do you want a deal? Do you want to take this into another level or that? But I think we have kind of devalued it. Um, 
I mean, if you stream something and 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 it's only worth naught point naught naught three of a cent or something, I mean, you know, it's like yeah, you <laughs> cheap, you know. Yeah, it's it, it, you know, somebody uh, posted up the other day, and I I worked with this guy with Held by Trees, and his albums probably cost around that twenty twenty five grand to make, was it? Yeah, probably because wow. he's you know he's using. He's using top maybe, quality people. He's using great musicians. I would yeah. think he has to pay them maybe five hundred a day. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, they work pretty fast. So it's you know the the EPs that I mixed recently for him. You know they did a I think they did one or two days at Real World. So Real World's not cheap, but it's not Abbey Road. You know. Yeah. Um, and they recorded kind of two six track EPs in that time, which I mixed um, over two days as well. So, I mean, that's only four days of studio time, maybe a bit of rehearsal. So they may not be 24 grand, but um, this article actually wasn't written by him, but it was this person was just basically saying, you know, my records, if I do it professionally, proper studio, get them mastered, get them done right, it's it cost me about £25,000 to make a, an album. And then um, showed you all the kind of costs of her for distribution and doing it herself, but all the kind of costs, and also then the money that comes back in. Yeah, and the streaming was is just deplorable. That's shocking. I mean, how we've allowed you know again, I have to part, put some of the blame at Universal because they did some deal with Spotify about yeah six years ago or something. Yeah, they were one of the main instigators of that. But um, no, I think, you know, everybody's making records. There's so much out there. It's it's such a different world to the, you know, probably the hundred main acts of 50 years ago to the thousands or tens of thousands now. Yeah. It's like, it's like, there's no like rock stars anymore. Like, uh, no, it's no, like, no. remember when people used to go to the, the films, uh, the films, the movies to see, like, they'd go to a Denzel Washington movie or a Tom Cruise movie. And now people go to see the movie, it's a Spider Man movie. They don't go, there's no like movie stars anymore. And I think that kind of equates right. as well with kind of, uh, musicians and stuff like that. They're like, Taylor Swift is, is she's like a pop star, right. you know, she's huge. But her music isn't great. But I mean, she's huge. People go to see her. Yeah. So there isn't that much of that anymore, I don't think. Um, Elton John made a gross nine hundred million on the, on his tour. Oh, to, yeah, really. She's isn't that incredible? Cheapest ticket I think was two hundred and fifty quid or something. Wow. Yeah, these legacy oh. bands are just killing yeah. It. Yeah, and the Stones are going to go out again um but yeah I, I mean there are none of those kind of it's a just just a different area it will probably it's probably been going on for about 30 years maybe through x factor or those yeah. kind of programs where somebody is kind of made into a star you know robbie williams band take that that kind of put together that whole kind of factory thing um in a way we've had a lot of that and i think a lot of people just see that as the way of being a pop star now or being a celebrity. You know, a lot of them, I think, just want to be basically celebrities. Yeah. Much as, like, a, a sensible artist. Yeah, they're just, like, they're, like, 
they just want to be famous and you go for what for being famous you're like what the fuck do you want to do something you know what i mean like if you want to be if you're going to be famous be famous for something i think that's what kind of drove a lot of people back then like you know obviously the beatles wanted to be famous but the music always came first and i think there's just something i don't know yeah, I mean, obviously, we all wanted to be successful back then. I mean, but we were, it was a lot more naive, you know, which is why you hear all the kind of crazy stories with um, East End, you know, guys that become managers or whatever. Um, but yeah, a lot, I mean, everyone, you know, who could pick up a guitar and play in the 60s, it was in a band, you know, you wanted to yeah. out there do gigs and, you know, and, you know, try and make this a profession. It's just that everyone thought then, as I did, that, it, that this would last just a few years, you know, and I think even the Beatles at one point thought, you know, it'd be like two years, you know, <laughs> you know? Um, and I thought that, it, yeah, I mean, I thought at 30 I would be out of the business totally. Really? Oh, yeah, because it was, a, it all seemed a very instant, uh, of the moment, short-term thing. It was like, we were having a ball, this is what we want to do. Yeah. I didn't see it as being a, a, you know, career that I would do when I was 50, 60, you know. Okay, I mean? okay. I don't think any of us did. I mean, the Who, they're kind of, I hope I die before I get old. Now they're out in the road, <laughs> 70s, you know, nearly 80s. Um, Half a Who. Won't, fool, won't get fooled again. But, <laughs> you know, there's always, a, you always have to have some kind of thing that makes you, um, you know, want to succeed. But, <clears throat> Again, because of the innocence that I think we all were, and mm. the lack of celebrity thing, like you said, it was big Hollywood stars and big rock and roll artists. Um, I don't think we, you know, from my point of view, it wasn't about getting wealthy or being a big successful guy. You know, it was when my I think of success was for me to actually do what I want to do, which is make yeah. records and work with people. So the fact that I could do that, you know, which I thought would say only last maybe 10, 15 years, um, that was the success, you know. I mean, I didn't, I don't want to be, I didn't want to be known. I didn't need to be known. That wasn't what we were after, you know. And the money was never great because we were house engineers for a lot of these studios. So it's not like it was easy to get seriously wealthy. Yeah. Some people do. So those were the criteria then. It wasn't about money and fame. It was about spending you know, your day in a studio making music or something. Yeah, but that, but, but that, that's something that you cannot, like that, like the fact of that those days are gone, like mm -hmm. now, like that, but that's like so priceless. Like to have that is just, you cannot buy that. You cannot buy those times. Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, you work in, uh, I think you were you were tape op on all along the watchtower. Like that's mm. just you know what I mean? Like, that's fucking brilliant. Like that just blows my mind. Like you cannot buy that. Like no matter how rich some dude is, a billionaire oh, yeah. Yeah, can't yeah. get that. It's just, you know, like yeah. do you do you do you uh did you have any idea what you were what you would have done after you were thirty? Well, I mean I did actually go and look at farms. You know, I kind of wanted to have a you know, a small holding or a farm. I was very much, you know, I did come out of that kind of whole 60s thing. I was very much of, of the land and down home, hippie-ish. Yeah. So I thought, I mean, we went and looked at places in West Coast of Scotland and, and uh, wow. a, a farm down in Wales. I mean, we looked at probably about half a dozen. Mm. Um, during the 70s when I was still 
kind of work and your time off. Um, I'm so thankful that I never did that because um, <laughs> it's such a hard life. Um, it would be now, a completely different podcast. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, but the idea of kind of having, I don't know, e- you know, even if it was small and just a small, self-sufficiency was kind of... So even when we moved down here, I mean, I had chickens and I had a methane digester and all kinds of stuff that we kind of built and had to try and, you know, make less impact on the planet. So right. I was thinking that even when I was like 21. But no, I th- that's kind of one of the things I wanted to do. But you know what it's like. You just roll on. You know, you got to 30 and, okay, the 80s, which was tough. But I had these things like King or China, but these albums that popped up every so often that were successful and kind of kept me, you know, around until, say, 86 when it's like, right, I'm 36. I haven't worked. I'm out of this, you know. And yeah. then talk, talk, and off we go again. So, but you know, like the funny thing is, every all the podcasts I've done, every podcast I've done on, like, so I've had you on, and I've had, I've had um, Tim on, and I had the dude that wrote the book on. You're all the most popular ones are all on Talk Talk. Like I've done like eighty of them, and I've had like Van Dyke Parks on all the Talk Talk ones are the most popular. It's a crazy like It is. It's mad. I mean, it has become. I guess if you. Uh, th- maybe this veil of silence is a really clever move. You know? Yeah, yeah, totally genius. Like, <laughs> give out little information. It's all a bit kind of you know stern. No, we don't. We don't give out any information. And then everybody else evolved in it. Apart from people like myself and Martin Ditch and my Simon Edwards, <clears throat> Tim obviously, and and Lee just kind of went. All right, I'm not talking either. I mean, Paul's great because he writes these lovely kind of posts on Facebook, um, which just kind of keeps you up to date with kind of what he's up to and his take on life. And he, he's yeah. a really, he's a great, he's got a, you know, he's a great writer, but he's a lovely kind of guy. <clears throat> but he still kind of gets involved and he's making records still. But um, yeah, when it when one person just pulls away and just disappears behind a veil. Fine, you know, that's I understood that. I, I was around Mark for like 13 years. So I could see why I wanted to do that. You know. But then when over the next, what would it be, you know, five to ten years, when everyone else just started to refuse to talk about it. Yeah. Not give interviews. Yeah. And actually get quite aggressive about stuff. It's like, you know, it's really weird. And now, of course, they're kind of almost bigger, or definitely much higher than they were back when these albums were made. Uh, there's this, like you say, you know, this interest in them and the amount of, of stuff on on the on the uh, internet is uh, remarkable. Yeah, it's added like there's a mystique now. I think mm-hmm. we're talking, you know? even probably more so since Mark passed away. You know, people want to know; they just want to know. And I think I always think that's what's um, you know, human beings, we kind of exist and then we die. You know, we, but but people always want to make a sequel to everything and want to keep going. And I think when something ends, you can kind of appreciate it more. Like the Beatles ended. It ended and that was it. And that's why, not saying there wouldn't have, people wouldn't have loved them. But I think that's the main factor why people loved them. Like Nirvana ended. And like Nirvana are still massively, like the numbers mm. they get on Spotify are like 30 million a month. Whereas, like, if they're on their twelfth album now, people will be like, eh, you know. "Yeah, yeah." You know what I mean? There's that kind of thing of, yeah, something ends. It kind of, 
it's it does, I think in our brains we're kind of we're, we're, we we can relate. Also, to that it. was that was a really big thing of Mark's approach to it anyway. You know, once those albums, which weren't obviously easy to make, but once they were finished and that was it, it was like, okay, it was just like put aside. That's over now. You know, and he was into other things, and then so each thing I worked with him on, there was that point where it was just kind of like, no, I don't need that anymore. I mean, they're not albums that. Probably uh, Tim, Mark uh, listened to very much. You know, Mark definitely not, didn't. Didn't listen to the, his own records? Not his own stuff, no. I mean, meticulously until it was finished. But once it was finished, we checked the pressings and it was all happy and he's off doing the odd interview. From then on, it was kind of, it was, well, it's past, it's history now. You know? So he yeah. was very good at drawing lines. I mean, that's why, you know, when he, disappeared like that or you know stopped working like that it um you know you could see it because it's it was so much easier for him to just kind of draw a line onto things and say right okay that's that it's done which it made him infuriating as well to work with <laughs> because he you know he was so yeah in a way cut and dry he knew totally knew what he wanted he knew what he didn't want you couldn't convince him or you know get him to mellow on something it was like yes no you know. yeah so there's no like collaboration kind of on. There's kind of a co- co- collaboration, but it was more. I mean, my relationship with him it went on. It was just more like he trusted me to to not mess up what he was trying to do. If you know what I mean. So he, you know, he's getting it, and he said in a couple of interviews. But you know, whatever instruments we we're doing, he trusted me to just get it to sound right, and he would speak up if he needed to. You know, but he there was this kind of trust. Um. And when we were doing the, his solo album, there was much more collaboration between us then. But it was just the two of us then. It was different to the previous couple with Tim. And we knew what we were doing, you know, because the, it was all scored out. So the album was all, you know, I heard the demo of that album, minus the lyrics, um, up in Suffolk, you know, probably eight months before we even got involved in doing it. He had it all done. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did have collaborate. I mean, very close with Tim, really. And I think in different periods of his life with the band and different parts of that, Colors of Spring too, especially, you know, there were very close relationships with Paul and Lee and, you know, members about making it all kind of work. Yeah. But he was very good at just like when something was no longer really required, he was very good at just like, okay. Cross yeah, the box, you know, and he did it with people. Yeah, I was about to say the same. It, it seemed like he did it. It was like that's over, and he could be yeah. fine with that, which is kind of well, weird. That's weird is, for me. Yeah. For me personally, I, I, I would find the biggest it weird. one for me was Lawrence Pendleton, um, which I guess maybe comes from. I don't know. I don't know if it comes from Ben's book or whether it's when I met him. If, you know, maybe uh, a year ago or just less than a year ago. Um, <clears throat> but he was saying that uh, because he played piano on the acoustic album, mm-hmm. Mark Solo album. And he was his, uh, Mark's son's school teacher. That's how he got the gig of playing piano. But Mark really loved his touch and everything, so he played on it. But they became really good friends. And that's rare in itself, in a sense, with Mark. You know, I mean, he had close friends, but he, he didn't have a massive... And it was hard becoming a close friend. Mm. Uh, you know, I was around him for 13 years. I don't know if I knew him that well. It's one of those, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But anyway, they'd gone really well and they'd go and play golf together. And it went on for 
well, 13 years or 14 years, right from 98 or whenever it was that we were recording the album and then right the way through until about 2014 or something like that, when Mark just like cut him off. You know, no longer did he, you know, he, he didn't take calls. He never got in touch. They never went and played golf anymore. They weren't involved anymore musically on anything. And it happened just literally overnight. So, who really, knows? It? You know, yeah, it's a, it's a hard one, which is why I guess the more bits and pieces to get out of them, you know, there is a mystery around Mark and, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, so the fact that, you know, I think people should leave, they should concentrate just on Mark. Forget, I mean, I saw a post the other day where some guy's really, you know, desperate to find out about Mark's kids. It's like, look. Yeah, you know, that's weird. You know about that. You, if you're inter interested in Mark and the music, it's Mark. It's not yeah, twelve year old who's now thirty or whatever. Some, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but people are very. I mean, there's a great one on Robert Palmer. I got this. Um, this guy contacted me. Ten eight from Canada, and he wanted to have any photos of me and Robert together. And uh, he was writing a book on Robert. Blah blah blah. And uh, he said, and his first wife um, is down as Sharon. I can't find anything about this woman, you know. So I thought, well, it's not Sharon. I've never heard of Sharon. It was Sue, you know. So I kind of replied back, said, no, I think you'll find it's Sue. And I'll hunt through and have a look at some photographs. And then his tone, you know, came back. It wasn't like, oh, well, thanks a lot. It was like, no, I think you'll find it, Sharon. <laughs> oh, God, right. And um, then I left it and, you know, it's like, fine, okay. And then it came back again and, it, and he, well, well, you know, when are you going to send this stuff through? And um, I know Robert's brother, Mark. So I got in touch with Mark Palmer. I said, do you know anything about, I can't remember his name now, you know, but whatever, Fred. Yeah. Um, and he goes, oh, yeah, he said, he's a nightmare, man. He said, um, yeah, be careful with him. He said he's got this whole um, worked out thing of what Robert Palmer was all about, and he's trying to just kind of interview people and okay. get bits that can force his argument. And I, and I said, well, you got in touch about Sharon. He goes, well, I've told him 10 times that there is no Sharon. It was Sue. And it was because in Chris Blackwell's book, he said – you know, I met Rob, Robert came out to the ranch or whatever, you know, and brought yeah. his wife, Sharon. He, he got it wrong, Chris Blackwell, in this book. So this okay. guy read this book and gone, it's, uh, it's Sharon, you know, and refuses from to and, he, and Mark had even been in touch with this guy. So he won't even listen to Robert's <laughs> brother, you know. So I immediately just like backed right off. It's like, but you know, people turn up and they, they all sound pretty cool at first, you know, ask me a few questions for doing this, about that. You think it's fine, you know. I'm pretty trusting. So there's a few around, definitely around the Mark Ollis. Yeah, it's, it, there is yeah. A, a there's a fringe of unstableness. Yeah, there's, you can see there's a lot of obsessive kind of fans yeah. within that kind of thing. That, that's always a weird uh, dichotomy with Mark because, uh, like that book, uh, Ben's book. It's yeah. a great book, it's very but, you, good. but you kind of read it and you're like, shit, man, that guy was a 
an asshole sometimes. So it's kind of like you're trying to separate like that. I remember no, totally. that whole you really are a cunt yeah. kind of thing. You're like, I mean, I think, um, you know, it, it's very tricky because, it, you know, it's now 30 years ago, I suppose, since we, you know, or more since we did laugh and stuff. But I think in hindsight, um, if I'm being really honest, I mean, it's probably a form of bullying in a way. Right. When you take a certain personality in a studio environment and really stick with it kind of you know it's more on laughing stuff than spirit ring spirit ring was a pretty pleasant experience is that why you have problems kind of listening to laughing stuff oh yeah i can't i mean it's just yeah after the flood yeah but not much else well there's no love in laughing stock there's a there's love there's no like spirit of eden sounds like spiritual and like love but laughing stock is dark as fuck dark isn't it isn't it it is and yet it gets voted as being that you know people's favorite of the total albums and stuff that i don't really quite understand but it's just me you know i'm too you know it's too much of a weird experience it was dark i mean it, we shouldn't have been doing it um in that in that way in a sense but um yeah um yeah, I'm not sure where we were, but <laughs> talking about the darkness of laughing stuff. Oh yeah, but people do kind of vote it as being one of their best. But um yeah, I think you've got to just do what Mark said originally, which is just like listen to the music. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in an environment that, that gives it its best shot. So, you know, not necessarily with headphones walking around a supermarket, but you know, sit down and really take it in. And I think, and that's it. That's that's it. You know. Yeah. I mean? And I totally think that's the case. We've got to judge him on his music. Yeah, he was an interesting guy. He was incredibly difficult to work with, in yeah. some ways, and yet incredibly like brilliant. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've said so many times that he always kind of looked at something from just this other approach. I've never, you know, everything sound wise and things. You know, we all were talking about this, and he'll come in from somewhere completely left field. And initially, you know, Tim or, or Mark, you know, and myself, or um, everyone's a bit like, what? You know, like, where does that come into the equation? And then suddenly, you know, it's like, ah, okay, if we do, you know. So he was always seeing things different to everyone else, which, yeah. you know, is his genius and makes it fantastic, but also makes it unbelievably difficult. Yeah. When, yeah if he doesn't agree with everyone else that's around to just throw it away by going oh you really are yeah you know yeah. you've lost that argument you know what i mean it's yeah like, whatever whatever yeah. you're doing Mark, you know. yeah but i like, think he, you know most of the time he was spot on that's the thing that's also unnerving you know yeah. He, yeah. he was right when he wanted to get rid of certain things or keep a mistake or you know he he, he didn't know Obviously, when you're just improvising, throwing all this stuff at the wall, he didn't know how it was all going to end up. But the things he chose during this slow process enabled it to feel real. And that, for me, is the big, I said to you before, but success of, of those albums is that they feel real. They feel like five guys in a room. And, and then that's the genius of, of, in a way. Yeah, it could have been very could have been very contrived. If you made the album with Pro Tools, it would be very different. Yeah, geez, I wonder what it sounded like. Well, 
forgetting the actual kind of tones at the moment because of the difference between that analog and, and protons, but we'd have a screen. So, you know, where, where you're just placing things and how you hear them and shifting a few milliseconds, you could actually, you know, kind of clock it and do it a different yeah, way. That's a good a point. Screen there. Yeah. It's easier to cut and paste and move things because, you know, that used to be a big mathematical experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just think it would, it would be a different album. I mean, it, it could be very close. I mean, the sounds, you know, would, the only main difference there would be a thing of all digital against kind of, you know, analog and digital. But um, I think it would be a different album because I think you, the editing visually and the fact that you could cut and paste and be so accurate about stuff, you'd have to really work at being lazy on some of your stuff to make it still feel... You know, that's like back to what we said right at the beginning about today's music, you know, because it's all so correct, it just kind of leaves you a bit cold. It's hard to it's hard to get a really good feel. It's hard to hear the bass player playing off the drummer. You know, all those things don't seem to really quite exist the way that they used to. Yeah. And we're so conditioned to like you know, when I grew up kind of recording from, we'll say, properly from like 18 to 19, you know, that starting it properly, I was conditioned to use clicks to record. Mm -hmm. So I would always use clicks to record. And, I, and as I've got older now, like I recorded a piano song a few weeks, months ago or weeks ago, whenever it was out. And I was like, I'm not using a click on this. Like, it's a classical piano piece. So I'm mm -hmm. using a click. And you can hear, you know, you can, you can yeah. hear all these little things that are like slightly off and, you know, yeah, time wise. Yeah. And that piece you put out, um, that I said, you know, really, it's a fantastic piece. I felt oh, great. Very much. And the fact that you can just kind of pull something back, or you know what I mean, you can play it rather than this. But yeah, no, getting back to the early seventies, we didn't use many clicks in the early seventies. I mean, some yeah. bands were messing around. But obviously, Floyd probably one of the earliest. I did that Sly Stone stuff with click, but um, that was because it was based around drum machines. But um, we didn't do a lot of clicks to the drummer it was much more the drummer's in control everyone played off the drummer and, and you know you get your groove naturally yeah the click came in very heavily in you know 79 80 and then was with us you know in a way from then on but definitely all through the 80s yeah yeah because it, so, it was hard to sync up all these new, you know this new technology things like lindrum machines with the SSL, with the SMPTE code running, two machines synced together. You know, there was a lot of syncing going on. And this yeah. thing called a SMPTE reading clock, which <clears throat> it cost about £2,000, but all it did was you <laughs> wow. put yeah, every proper studio had one. But you wow. basically just put SMPTE, a copy of the SMPTE code that was running the computer and all your machines. So the same one, same code, went into the SMPTE reading clock and then it just generated, you gave it a start time, say, you know, okay, 30 seconds in. Mm. <clears throat> At 30 seconds, it would kick in and the Lindrum would be in, you know, would, it would trigger the Lindrum to be in time and all the other bits and pieces that would run off different codes. And it would take a lot to set up. Yeah. But once you've got that kind of thing all locked solid together, in a way, you've got to have a click. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've got to have something that is 
in you know anchoring down this is where we are because it was there was just so much to go wrong yeah i think it works though for electronic music it does work for electronic music because you want that kind of basic kind of pulse but i think when you're getting into more acoustic-y kind of stuff even when i when i set up clicks now i will set up like say i have a bar of eight i'll go like 120 121 122 120 you know i'll kind of do it like that so you're kind of oddly going out a bit just you know and i think it 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 does something it's it's weirdly you know what i mean it just it's i don't know what it is it's like the imperfections of of it kind of for what makes it yeah i think it just allows you to breathe a bit more over the top of it it's not you know it's not yeah. just a fixed 120 thing happening yeah but, but no the gratitude is really nice it was good well thank you very much i mean that's pretty good as well um i, I do you know i was listening to it, that record you did with bombay bicycle club flaws yeah that's a great sounding record it's a lovely record isn't it yeah yeah did you mix yeah. that like on a desk and everything yeah no that's mixed on on a, on a Neve when when they had a Neve at the Red Room, which is one of the Moco, uh, Moloco studios off the old Kent Road, uh-huh. used to be Orinoco back in the eighties, but um, Moloco bought it uh, and it turned it into the Red Room, and it had a Neve desk. But I mean, that album was most of that is recorded on twelve, fourteen tracks, really, in, because I can't remember the name of the. It's not Freddie, but the main, the main guy, um, who's Jack, Jack, Jack. He um, he had a very basic home, you know, like laptop setup, and I think he was using almost something like Garage Band. You know, but oh, he God. could only record one track at a time with whatever way he was working. So the drums were like on one track, you know, and the bass is on one track. Everything mm. was just mono signals. And it's recorded in in flats in in um, Crouch End. And oh, cool! Um, you, if you listen to it, Kev, you can hear there's the odd siren in the distance. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, so when they came in, and the, it, the link was because of um, Neil McCall, because his son was in the band. Ah, okay. And Neil said, "Why don't you check out Phil?" So they, we literally um, we mixed the whole thing. I think it was literally in a day. If not, it was two days, but I think it was done ridiculously fast. Right. Um, because they, as usual, with all these things, there's no budget. And all <laughs> um, yeah, I think it was. Um, I think it was two days. Really. <clears throat> but because um, you know, the, although every track, in a sense, was slightly different instrument-wise, there were similarities, but. They've been recorded in different places, but the fact that it was one track of drums, you know, that's what you dealt with. Yeah. It yeah. was kind of fast in a way of setting things up. And I, I love it. I think it's a lovely album. And it, it was really successful then at the time. It, you know, it, it sold 100,000 plus, you know. That's a lot. Yeah. It was a big album. Got into the charts, all kinds of stuff. Um, they always remind me of Talk Talk. They're kind of, not like their sound, but they. I always thought that they yeah. could be a band that could go on to do like not. I like the new yeah. music. Jack's but, you done know. his own kind of solo album, but yeah, that was cool. That was cool, Mister Jugs or something. Is it right? I Mr. think he's probably, he'll be around doing stuff. I think for for years, whether it's with the Bombay Bite or other stuff, but he's very and he's an intriguing guy. Is he? Yeah, yeah, he is. I mean, I'm you know when I met them, they were really young, and that first down floors. It's got to be ten years ago or something. Wow. 
if not more. And it was like, it was 2010, I think. So it could be 13 years ago. Whatever. It was a while back. Yeah, that's um, a while. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe it was 2013, but it was a while back. Um, I, I can't remember what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. And th- th- so they were really young. I, mean, I think Neil's son was like 18. So you've got these kids who are like 18 to 20. Yeah. Um, with these great tracks, because I, I love his voice. I love the tracks. I thought that and the vibe of them and everything was just, um, and, and simple, you know, not 15 tracks of guitar parts or anything. It was just, you know, two or three guitars or a banjo. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's far. And I've done a couple of things with them since. I did a thing for them during lockdown, which was kind of, uh, in a sense, slightly depressing. Um, because I had to be in the studio on my own. Oh. They weren't allowed there. And I've never really loved all that. I love having you know, the artist or somebody, preferably the singer-songwriter but uh, you know, or the whole band, but somebody there. Uh, when you're just kind of in a studio on your own, on your own with a pro tools <laughs> rig. You know. So I kind of got the mixes up. And then when I was kind of happy with something, I would then email it. To five different characters, oh, right, London, right, right. and the manager. <laughs> and then you kind of sit back and wait, and um, you know, initially because I was mixing four or five tracks, four I think. Um, day one, they were obviously aware of these calls, or these emails that would arrive, you know. So um, probably get back to me within the hour, you know, and they'll be like, "Yeah, it sounds good," or. Yeah, can you do this a bit louder? Or I think that's got too much reverb, you know. So then you run off another one with those changes, you send them off. You know. <clears throat> but by day two, I think the enthusiasm was waning. <laughs> so I'd kind of send, you know, these mixes away and then hear nothing, you know, and be like two hours. <laughs> that's a little reminder, you know. <laughs> it was, and it was kind of weird because I've never. Never really worked that way, completely kind of okay. devoid of the musician being there. These telephones or transit, you know, calls to try and it, it's, it, you can't mix over the phone in the sense. Yeah. It's very hard. Um, but they used, I mean, they did use, they used three of the four tracks. Um, my favorite, they didn't use for some strange reason. But, um, so I did do that. I probably, you know, I've done, I think, worked with them like three times, but the first was The Floors, which was kind of a, a proper album. Yeah. Do you, do you like, do you mix, how loud do you mix? Do you mix rather loud or do you mix low? Uh, volume on speakers. Yeah. That varies. Um, depend on the music, but I usually start out on kind of big speakers and check kind of bottom end and, and all that kind of malarkey. Um, and get a, you know, maybe sixty percent of a of a mix or a vibe up, and then I'll go oh. to kind of smaller ones. Give the ears a break, fine tune in, hear it in a different concept. But I do, I don't like, I don't monitor loud, but I do like large speakers. Okay, like the, the, you know, I've got these Tannoy Ardennes here, which is like fifteen inch. Um, they're almost a bit smaller than a Lockwood, but they're big, you know. Um, and I just love what you get off those kind of speakers, really. So I, I nearly always use the big speakers in studios. Um, 
And I'm not a fan of some of the small, you know, I'm not a fan of NS10s, you know, I never have been, although I know once you've got your head around them, they're a fantastic speaker. Yeah, I used to and have them. They just so tire me out. They just tire me out. Where's down my hearing? But, um, yeah, I like kind of larger monitoring. But you must have looked after your hearing because your hearing is so great. Like It's absurd. I mean, I've just been mad. Lucky, yeah. My brother and I are both the, the, the same. I mean, he, you know, he's he's done probably even more perhaps live PA work than I have. But you know, he worked with Rush and phenomenally loud. Um, and his hearing's good, but I mean, mine, if anything, it's become more zingy in around three three K or something. That those kind of sounds tend to make me jump. Oh, really. Off. Used to, yeah. <laughs> so rather than losing that kind of thing, of kind of what's that? Um, I find sirens and the world generally very noisy. When I wear these karma things when I go out, I'm the exact same. I'm the if same I know I'm going to be in a loud environment, and then uh, went to that gig. I took these other things they have, which shut off. I mean, they, they suddenly cut out something like seventy percent of the volume, but they keep all the frequencies, so it's just like a dimmer. Are they those? Are they those? I think I might have. I have ones that are like, I don't know. You've seen them ones. They're like, uh, what are they called? Earpiece. They cut like, like, they're like. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. They cut like I think it's like twenty six SNR. Like you can hear it, but like it cuts oh, yeah. the shit out of it. Like, but no, I, I've I've found that the world is 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 just kind of noisy and certain frequencies just bug me now. So. You know, plates, you know, cutlery on plates. That's the frequency. Oh, that's it. But uh, no, I've just been really lucky, I think, with the hearing. I mean, wow. You know, we, you know, was, the thing is, uh, you know, growing, growing, uh, at Olympic and uh, at Ireland initially, they were Tannoys and Lockwoods, which were loud and punchy, and they're not that far away from you, but they weren't mega loud. Okay. They weren't... You felt nice sitting against this base against the wall, you know, but it wasn't pinning you. When they cha- took out the tannoys, they put in JBL, huge JBLs, 43, 43s, which were just there. The, that was any damage that happened to me, that's when it really, yeah, they were vicious. I mean, they had horns <laughs> and you know, multiple speakers all over, oh, God. Did, and very close at island and loud. You know. Um, and the only doubt you know, I had uh, my right ear, I was working with this band in the uh, early 2000s called 10,000 Things. They were from Leeds, fantastic band. Oh, you told me about them before. Yeah, really. One of my, I love that band. Uh, it was like, well, my brother was over in Canada and he came to the gig and he's, he, he, he leant down at some point and went, it's like, it's like watching The Who, man. <laughs> um, but I, was just dealing with the volume. It was right on the, I had no protectors in it. It was right on the verge of like, this is, yeah, this isn't ideal, you know. Yeah. And a friend of mine came up and just went, fell, right, just yelled. Oh, no. So I could hear, you know. And that's what did the damage. Was, you know, this was kind of just about controllable. This guy going straight into my ear. And I felt it kind of like, whoa, that's not good news, you know. Oh. Um, and it definitely had some effect. It probably took about 
two, three years to really not, for me not to be aware that this is a bit, you know. Yeah. We, it wasn't that I'd gone deaf. It hadn't changed too much, but I was aware that there was something different now. Right. And it went on for a couple of years. But no, I've been really lucky. Oh, yeah, because it's like it's something that people don't even think about. Like, I had something similar to you. Like, I, I woke up one day and my ear was just like, I couldn't hear. First off, I thought my headphones was fucked because <laughs> I was hearing like the snare right. like there over my right eye. And I was like, oh, shit. Then I went into my little studio and I put them on. I was like, oh, and I kind of panicked a bit. And then I thought, oh, OK, it's probably just something, whatever like that. But then like a few days later, the snare was now there. So it had gone. But but then it lasted like that for like six years. So I had like six years of just I couldn't listen to really mu- I couldn't really listen to rock music because it annoyed me so much because the kicks would be like there and the mm-hmm. snares would be there. But it turned out it was something to do with my eustachian tubes. So in my ears and because I started getting kind of anxiety about it, I started getting this thing called hyperacusis. So everything was really loud. So my brain couldn't differentiate between something that was like a tip and something that was loud. So if like if someone like opened the door, it'd be like someone. Going, so I would be going around wearing those little fucking things in my ears all day. And then it just slowly, like gradually started to come down. But it's awful, like, because it's like. You know, it's I mean, one of the things, the advantage I think is I've never worn headphones much. And I, I think that's probably why. I think that's a secret because Timfree Screen has terrible tinnitus and problems and created by wearing headphones. Oh, is he it's mixing on loud. headphones and stuff? Just too loud or feedback, whistle, something coming down. Um, you know, Jeff Beck, who used to, you know, live a couple mile down the road, he, he, he had terrible tinnitus as well, like madness for him. Okay, and he knew exactly when, you know, where it was, the stage he was on, and it was really? a, a side fill, and something held back and just hit him at the wrong kind of angle, and just oh. took his hearing pretty much out, and he had tinnitus from that day on, and I mean, you know, he died, and oh. he was seventy or something, you know, seventy eight or something, but he got it when he was about twenty seven, um, wow. just used to drive me crazy. And Tim the same. I was working with Tim. The last thing we did together, really, this some um, fire, 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 fire burning. It was this very unusual kind of music. And we were working <clears throat> in a. We took over a house in Lewis and built a studio in there. Cool. And pulled all our gear, and I had my little tannoys with me, System Eight, and an amp and stuff. And when I was setting it up, I had a little Mackie desk as a monitor desk. We had all kind of valve mic pre's and all kinds of stuff that we'd play. And when I was setting it up, the right hand speaker was was kind of going <laughs> I went, shit, that's really annoying. Um, I'll sort that. And Tim said, no, leave it, man. It's doing wonders with my tinnitus. Oh no way. Something was can you know helping to cancel him out. So he's going, no, just leave it. It's really good. <laughs> We're gonna work with this kind of thing on one side. <laughs> Um, but no, he suffered a lot from me. But I think that's why headphones. I've never really worn them a lot. Yeah. In front of a pair of speakers where possible. Because if something feedback or something you can duck, you, you know what I mean? When yeah. you've got headphones on and it's in your head. Um, yeah. Especially blasts, like those blasts. Yeah. It can just blast much, like. Much more it, disturbing. Even on Pro Tools, like sometimes you could set something up and you just like think and it'll just blast out and you're like, fuck the fuck. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's just yeah. dodgy, like. And people are always telling people, oh, you should mix on headphones. Like, 
don't mix on headphones. Like fucking, <laughs> at least if your speaker is kind of low, you can kind of mitigate yeah. it. And it's not like like you were saying, it's not actually in your fucking ears. That's the thing. Yeah, it's just. Um, I mean, I've got some Sennheisers, but they're kind of over the ear ones, which I get. Yeah, I got given with um, uh, this the the people that do Karma. Um, <laughs> whose name immediately has gone out flair okay they they gave me various um kind of buds you know headphones that they had that they have because <clears throat> i mean i've been around them now for about six years so they gave me some of the original ones which were very very expensive um and now they've kind of got a completely different design where there's a kind of kink in it to go around yeah. bone because they've tweaked that that bones will cause a lot of the problems. <clears throat> so now a, a kind of little pad, pod that was, um, you know, 300 quid or something is now about 65 because wow. they, they can basically 3D print these things. Oh, um, okay. Uh, so I've got all these kind of different headphones, but and the, and I have a case if I really want to check something in detail, I will plug it direct into the CD and, <laughs> and I'm there. But um, it's rare. I mean, that's usually an answer to somebody's question, and usually about talk to. Them, to be honest, I've done, I think that you said about interest. I think over the last twenty years, I've had more people ask me what is a specific thing at one minute ten <laughs> than on anything I've ever worked on. <laughs> and I try, you know, it's like, well, I'll check that out. You know, I kind of go and listen to it. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> It's nothing. <laughs> it's not. It's just telling they got really bad hair. It's like, did you hear? There was a guy back in the uh, mid uh, mid seventies when I was at Ireland. I did this album with um, Andy Mackay. It was from Roxy Music. We okay. Yeah. In search of Eddie Rifferson, but we were doing these kind of different albums from the Roxy crowd, and um, I got a letter <clears throat> months after the records came out got a letter from some professor in London and he was asking specifically about a particular sound. <laughs> and it was written, I mean, you can imagine, it's very hard to describe in sounds in the first place, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He was coming at it from this kind of very straight kind of approach. Um, but he intrigued me. So I, I spent ages like analysing what he was talking about and the bit specifically where you could hear it the most. Yeah. And I came to the conclusion that it was headphone leakage. No way. Uh, that was, you know, you were hearing that on whether it was the vocal mic, you know, whatever it was. But that's what I pinned it down to. So I actually did reply to this guy. I think <laughs> weeks later, I'm going to say, I think it might be this. And he was so kind of, he came back, oh, that's fantastic. You know, I wondered if it was something quite bizarre like that. <laughs> Yeah, but most of talk to. Yeah, because people are just so like, people just yeah, like we said. There's there's and it's only getting bigger. Like that, yeah. I just I like talk talk is constantly yeah. more people kind of getting into them and just kind of pouring over those records and oh, you know, it's like I think you know, uh, unfortunately, when someone passes away, there's always oh, yeah. that slight always. yeah, so 
which is kind of which is yeah. kind of weirdly annoying. It's good, but it's annoying too. It's like why didn't you listen to them when they were alive? Like you know, you know, I get it. It's it's good that they're getting into the music, but you know, it's. But that's I mean I've I've mentioned that in in certain interviews when people go oh wow what it was like you know working with Hendrix or with with Bob Marley and stuff and yeah it was amazing but they weren't the gods that they oh, okay. that they were made into you know you know Bob Marley was very when I first met him he was very much a street kid from Trenchtown I mean yeah just looked great a, a smart guy but all of them were saying they were these kind of heavy ish street guys you know. That, you know the fact that he ended up being this kind of prophet godlike figure. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, so it's very hard. We're talking about different people, really. You know, Hendrix, I feel that more than with Bob Marley in the sense of yeah, because he's my hero too. You know, so to yeah. actually work with this guy and then and just be so in awe of this guy's playing. You know, and then finding dying. I've worked with. I mean, I knew his girlfriend at the time. You know, I've met her since. Well, she's dead now, but I did meet her girl that was with him and it all happened um there's a guy called yuli john roth who's who's in a in a in a in a band um german band i think scorpions and oh, scorpions um, something like that and <laughs> like one uh, of those he, cock rock bands yeah he uh you know he was good mates with this marilyn woman and uh, they had all kinds of stories and theories about you know hendrix and you know I mean, it's definitely not um, a straight, cut and dried story. I mean, exactly yeah. what happened is probably never been known, but yeah, definitely mistakes were made and things, you know, weren't handled the best. There's there is a bit of mystery around the state he was in at the flat and the state he ended up in at the hospital. Yeah, there's yeah. a kind of like, well, when did all that happen? Um, kind of question. But, yeah, you know. What what was he actually like when you met him? He was really shy. Was he? Yeah. Yeah. When I was, you know, I did the, the electric guitar bits, but yeah, he was really. I mean, he was really polite, really friendly, um, but he kind of got the feeling. I mean, this is a, in a working env environment as opposed to kind of on stage. As it were, yeah, know? I get you. So you know when when he needed to kind of you know get certain things sorted, he was very much that forceful kind of kind of right let's sort this try this <clears throat> but if you switch off from him actually kind of working to just being there you know having a cup of tea or unpacking the guitar or saying hello he was very pleasant and very shy you know he didn't push himself so right. definitely when we did the electric stuff he was kind of crouched you know down playing it was hard to really see yeah what he, was he wasn't you know standing there doing a show <laughs> yeah but um, yeah, he was really, you know, really nice. What a great band too! But that yeah. band was just Mitch, Mitch. fucking incredible. Like, and the drum sounds and things that they got back then on the four track, just stunning. Yeah, they're four track, but that's fucking yeah. Bad. The um, all long watch I started off on four track, but got bounced another four, and then eventually I think went to New York, and got bounced to a, a, a big machine. Because four track was the kind of, I mean, it was only about two months before the eight track arrived in, in, in England, but it was two months before. So they were still on four track. Yeah. So it was done on four track. And I've got loads of, of um, multi tracks of Hendrix 
which are just four track, you know. Oh, wow. Purple Haze and all those kind of things on four track. And you've got drums, fantastic sounding dr- mono drum kit, you know. Class. <laughs> a guitar, a vocal. And then, I mean, some of them are six track because they did four and bounced. Oh, so okay. You know, put it, it's been archived into Pro Tools or whatever. So you've got your original four tracks, then a kind of, you know, stereo bounce or whatever, which you don't need, and then two tracks of overdubs. But they're a gem to listen to, especially his vocals, because you hear him talking and coughing before, before, you know, before he comes in and <laughs> clearing himself. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the end on one of them, he, you know, he's going, yeah, freak out. Let's <laughs> Kind of, you know, mumbling madness, just as the kind of on the outro. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, it's, it shows you when you listen to that, just the fun. You know, I did these teaching things occasionally, which I, I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about. But um, one of the things I used to do was play some of these multi tracks, especially the English stuff, just the vocal, just so everyone could hear what a great time he was having. Because that's <laughs> the secret, you know, when you're trying, I know that. Everyone loves all the angst of making a very difficult album. All that. But, you know, back in that era, my attitude right the way through, really in time, you know, and I worked on a couple of albums that were, you know, Stommy Master, which was pretty out there. A couple of things that were, you know, weird or pushing me to, to yeah. in a different direction. But I'd never worked on anything like, you know, the torture stuff. So the period before that happened, you know, you were, um, yeah, very much kind of capturing stuff and ha- having a good time or trying, you know what I mean? It was supposed to be fun, this, you know? Yeah. Nothing, a lot of those, if you listen to a lot of those records, or if you can have, you know, I've got multi-track of what's going on. Oh, wow. Yeah. If ever we was... get into the same space anywhere, I can, um, I could probably even send you it. Um, oh, incredible just to, to, to solo kind of James Jameson along with like the string session and Man. just how beautiful it's all put together. It will blow you away even more. Wow. Um, drums, I think, are on like two tracks, maybe three. Percussion, you know, 16 track. And it's rammed with brass and the strings and with the band and vocals and you know, just amazing. So, yeah, I'll try and drag it out and um send you some files oh thanks very much that's 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 what's cool about that record like the drums they're more like uh they're kind of playing like the percussive instruments they're not very like loud you know what i mean they're like they're like just kind of gently moving along with the with the music like the vibe of that record i know we said it earlier but it's just such a i love the way everything flows into each other you know, yeah. like what's going on, and then what's happening, brother, and then it just goes into all that. Like, mercy, mercy, me, it's such a fucking God. yeah, isn't it incredible? Yeah, Jeez, like, but I mean, they got the same stick, that, you know, that we've had with um when they delivered the album. You know, it was it was seen as like well, no singles, and it all runs into each other as a continuous piece, virtually. So, hang on a minute, you know, how are they gonna? So they saw all the problems with the album as opposed to really just like wow, what a beautiful, yeah. Right? So it happens yes. to so many bands. I mean, it's it's almost now a cliche where, some, <laughs> you know, massively successful now, but was turned down at some point by, and yeah, happened so many times, you know, the Beatles with Dick James or saying, you know, not Dick James, the other guy saying guitar, Decker, saying Decker, guitar yeah. bands are dead, you know, it's <laughs> like one of the classic lines, just as we're about to head into <laughs> one of the biggest eras. 
<laughs> there's always been those said, so, no, no, not for us. Yeah. It's unfortunate there'll never be another Beatles thing. I remember you put yeah. something on your page not so long ago and it was with Gene Simmons talking about like you know, yeah. there's never going to be another Beatles yeah. or a Hendrix and stuff like that. And it's kind of like there can't be the way because the way the business actually is dictated. It just can't. Yeah. It just can't. He's a very good artist. I thought he was he explained things very yeah. well. Yeah. 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 I think it's um. Yeah. I mean, there's there's too many people now. The the, the media and, and the access we have to making music and. One can do it at home, you know, pretty much, or even on your phone, probably. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, the mystique has, has disappeared somewhat. And then you've just got a vast amount to, to sift through. Um, I'm sure there's some brilliant stuff. I mean, I do get sent things through to, you know, the odd link. And there are some things out there just like really kind of interesting and out there. Yeah, I mean, there's great stuff. Um, Pepe Deluxe are one of my favourites. It was banned from, I mean, it's Norway or Holland or somewhere else. <laughs> Mate, was just insane. Really just is. so cleverly put together. And the sounds again. <clears throat> um, so there is stuff out there, but it's, it's it's almost too much. Yeah, it's it's like our, our brains just can't, we're not made to have all the information of every like even like we were talking about like the analogy of news we're not made to know exactly what's happening in the darkest reaches of somewhere in the world it's just not it's just not actually not healthy for us it's just it's not, not if you think back to you know many years ago things used to take so long didn't they to get through so if something happens it might in the old days take a, a week to, to get through you know then it became like a couple of days and then yeah you know now it's seconds yeah, the whole world knows about something, and I think it it makes people react differently, uh, especially leaders in different countries. They would they hear a different way, and way things filter through. It's just different now. This instant thing, you have to make a reply, so you immediately take take a side, and it's all just such. It's much messier. Yeah, I th I think it, you know I think the internet ruined a lot of things. Because, like, even on every little level, like, I love, like, loads of, like, alien shit. I love all that alien stuff. Yeah, yeah, when yeah. you were a kid and you'd see, like, these videos of flying things, you're like, oh, my God. But now some guy tell you on the internet, oh, that was some fucking rocket. You're like, oh, dude, why was you? <laughs> you know what I mean? So that, like you were saying, that mystique, we've lost that mystique in yeah, kind yeah. of every aspect of life. So I think it's to, I don't know, maybe it's, uh, everything's kind of cyclical in a way. In oh, a yeah. way. It might, like, we might get in this another kind of, I mean, the way it's going, it's not looking very good, but we it's might. Not, I mean, the, the pendulum, you know, probably needs, you know, it's already swung far <laughs> in one direction now. Uh, <laughs> it needs to, you know, to, to, to swing back and find a bit more uh, consensus and normality. But, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I it's, it's tricky because, I mean, you know, the world's already always been fucked up. You know, we just, um, we look at these things now and say it's all instant and it's easy to access. Thing, oh, the world's in such a mess. You know, it's always been in a mess. You know, I was yeah. born three years after a war, you know, World War, and then went through all the other chaos that we, you know, went through through the 60s, like I said. So it's always been that. Um, but I do think mankind is destined to destroy itself. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. I just think that that's built into our into our genes now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we destroyed everything else, we got rid of all the other forms of, of, of 
of men. Um, and it, should, and it shouldn't be that way. It's like we literally are living on a planet that we should be grateful about everything. We fucking everything. And it's like, nah, man. <laughs> just gonna, it's just like, dude. Well, you know? I don't get I don't really get it. I don't understand it. These whether they're phenomenally rich companies and stuff, but pumping rubbish into the sea. Oh, it's gross, dude. Um digging open cast mines in Africa for some chemical you know, it just seems so bizarre that we're doing this when we know that this is all kind of wrong. Yeah. And these people are incredibly wealthy. Once the planet goes, they go too. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like money's not going to make any difference once it's impossible. Yeah. So I never quite understand. It's a bit beyond me, this whole thing. Because I've followed kind of greenishes through this from the 70s. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what we're doing now as greenishes, I don't think is the right thing to be doing anyway. <laughs> no, it's like some mad shit. Like over here, they're crazy. Like, like the, I think they want you to like walk fucking to work for about forty miles. Like you're like you, sometimes things go too far the other way. You're like, dude, yeah. you know yeah. what I mean? It's like you can't just all of a sudden everyone has to buy an electric car. You're like, how can you afford it? Like, not everyone can just. And also, they're not the answer. They really no, not. It, the batteries it, blow up constantly. The batteries are bad news. That's this open cast mining in Africa and stuff. But you, you know, you should read some of the. They they excavate something like a hundred thousand tons of something to get cobalt, cobalt to get one ton of this thing. They're doing lithium cobalt for these different kinds. They're not clean. I mean, the battery. You know, once the car's built, yeah, it's clean. But you have to take into account the amount of energy and crap to make this car in the first <laughs> place. So if the batteries are really bad news, yeah, and then there's a lot of energy used on the car. Fine, that's the case with any car. Mm. I think they should have explored hydrogen. I still think that's the answer rather than batteries. The, the cars weigh so much. They're all huge. Yeah. You know, you've got an engine or a battery that's shifting a ton or two ton. It, you know, it's like, we'll make it lighter. <laughs> <laughs> don't have the batteries. Uh, hydrogen. But yeah. uh, I just don't think we're making the right long-term issues on the grid i think another gut reaction from governments so oh, oh yeah the way we do things and again these things it's weird how it happens worldwide doesn't it i mean or you know the west anyway so america hung up on all this kind of thing we're hung up on on, all, on this kind of um supposedly green free um power which is no such thing no then you get a countries like the philippines who pretty much you know very poor and live a completely different way of life and I mean, they're, I mean, in some ways it's lovely, but I mean, they're like 30, 40 years behind us. In, in, you know, they've got all the technology now. They're all walking around with phones, which they weren't like three years ago. But um, their way of life, you know, there's no way that batteries, electric cars, and things are going to be part of their existence for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. I don't even think here it's going to quite you know, work out the way they hope. Well, there's always an overcorrection. Like, there's just always yeah. like, like that bullshit Euler's stuff they have in, in, um, fucking uh -huh. London. Like, that guy is the biggest prick ever. If he, like, like that guy's such a knob. <laughs> What's him, Sadiq Khan? He's such a tosser, bro. It's just like, yeah. dude. No, where, um, where Sally's sister lives in Croydon, they're on this hill, which is actually now, it's Croydon, but it's now part of this, you left, camera thing oh no 
And it's fine for them because I think her sister's got a car that's only kind of four years old. You know, it's okay for mine. Mine's five years old. There's a woman on the road who's this elderly lady who's got a car that's like 15 years old. She and it's we shouldn't be laughing, but she can't even get in that car and climb out out of the road because she has to pay the 12 quid just to get in a car to go down the road to the shops because she's Uh, on this edge. It's not being thought through again. No, but like just cause it's like it's all or nothing. It's like it's like this. It's like it's like everywhere in life, you know. This the overcorrections and everything is mental. Yeah. It's like they go from one end extreme and then they go to the other extreme. It's like, can we just get in the middle there, lads, and just kind of you know relax? It for won't. A it won't. Um, again, it won't change the air quality the way that you know because they're not stopping vehicles coming in. Mm. If you can afford the twelve quid a day, you can still go in and pollute. Yeah. It's it's only hitting people financially and making more money for the that idiot <laughs> mayor, but it's not being used to clean up the, the air. They've already said that they the because they've had this in inner London for a while. They've said it's made negligible amount of difference to the quality of air in London, which is it's still thousands of cars. You know, it doesn't matter yeah. if you paid for it or not. There's a massive kind of problem. Um, You've either got to ban cars, if that's, you know, or... I think, I think that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, I think they are. They're or, made for, you're rich. You'll be able to afford a car if you're rich. Yeah, like, that's yeah. kind of, it seems the way it's going. I know people go, oh, that's conspiracy theory, but it's like, well, not really. No, I think it is going away. And I mean, it's, the only th- good thing about London is um, public transport. Is, is is amazing, you know. The buses yeah. in queue, they're, they're every few minutes. So, I mean, London has a very you don't need a car mm. out of out of London. Yeah, I could, I mean, I'd have difficulty living down here without, without a car. I guess you know, you'd just have to slow everything down a lot. But I mean, the nearest shop for me is three and a half miles away. So, I'm really, like, yeah, so I'd have a, an hour and a bit walk an hour and a half walk to the shop you know and then back again wow so that's peaceful though i'd love yeah, to yeah. like yeah, yeah i'd rather like to, if i lived in london i fucking would uh just go away I with couldn't that. Do it, yeah. no I, mean, I, I loved it when i was living there a couple of times but um i've kind of um yeah fallen out of love with london it's um it just seems incredibly noisy, busy, um, and it's 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 lost that kind of freedom that it had. You know, the L- yeah. London, the London of the seventies and seventies, when you could float around in London and there weren't cameras, you could just you know be free. Yeah, and now you, you know you're being clocked all the time. It's all very controlled. Yeah, people. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. Really- I think that's a problem. A long time. Yeah. Well, we ended on a nicer note. Um, Musically, um, what what decades do you listen to music more? Or what decade do you think is the best sounding? Oh, well, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I know you're not going to say the 80s. No, I mean, there's a lot lot cleaner, a lot of technology that that could have made things better. But no, the, the 80s... It was it's all too um, overblown. Um, I like a lot of stuff from the seventies. I mean, I, I've heard 
there, there's a lot of stuff in the 60s as well. I guess 60s and 70s are still my favourite decades, partly from the style of music, but also some of the sounds. Um, when you think back to it being on such kind of basic gear, which is, might be why these things that sound a bit magical because they just haven't had a lot of treatment. They're just yeah kind of idea. But I think um, I, for the vibe, I think those two decades, I think from the music, the vibe of stuff, and in a way the honesty of the sounds, it sounded more real to me then. 80s was kind of fiction, man. And then, <laughs> yeah. you know, 90s was, was back to kind of real. Yeah. If I had to pick one decade, probably the 70s. Was okay. Okay. Well, is there any records in particular you would say you would kind of? Ooh. That's hard. I know. Yeah. Um, well, I think we've already kind of mentioned that you know what's going on, which has to be up there. Um, quality record. Uh, yeah, it's great sounding and, and totally quality record. That um, Nick Drake. Nick Drake had some great. Nick records. Drake. Yeah, those first two or three albums of Nick Drake. Um, I think same with, with Cat Stevens. Really, I love the first couple of albums. Um, they got, yeah, there was just a kind of sound with Cat Stevens. They messed around with Dolby's. Ah, okay. Um, Paul Samuel Smith, who was producing it, was the old bass player from Yardbirds, but he was producing. Mm-hmm. They drove maintenance guys at Island Man, but uh, he used to record with because it was like Dolby's were in a way a newish thing. I mean, they'd been around since about '68. Yeah, but he would record with the Dolby's, especially those backing vocals that Cat Stevens would do, multi-tracked, you know. And then they'd play them back, but he would adjust the Dolby. wasn't like fully off, but it was heading back towards it. So they all got this, like an Aphex Exciter sound. They all got this kind of gloss to them, extra top end. Cool. And he used to do that a lot. So those records for me are just. that's that's my life in Bedsit Land in nineteen seventy, you know, when I was living in London <coughs> and getting together with Sally and we played Nick Drake, Cat Stevens. Were, were just, you know, probably the, the biggest Sly Stone. Oh, a great record. I was down from sixty nine Stan. Um so yeah, definitely those others. And then if you go back into the later, I mean I, I don't know, it's it's triggered box, yeah. I like that early stuff. I thought it was just kind of crazy and off the wall. They <laughs> ended up being rather cabaret and boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did like the first couple. Um, and and kind of rock me. I mean, Zeppelin, you can't leave them out. I mean, really, from the 70s. Phenomenal. Still yeah. sounds great today. Yeah. They're like super, like, I always think Zeppelin sounds like raw. It's just like. So. Like that huge room, room sound that Bonham has. I love like, it. I just kicks the it shit on and it just sounds like you're there. You know, <laughs> drums sound like a drum kit if you're standing in a room. Yeah, yeah. It all just feels real, and it's and the riffs are great. Plants singing, you know, and up loud. I mean, really, that is a that is a buzz. Yeah, and the first album, which I guess is what is is that sixty nine? The first album. Yeah, sixty nine. Yeah, yeah, so it kind of blows my my um date a decade but um i mean i still played that whole lot of it turned that up and it, just the way it starts and you, you hear his you know the clunk of his hi-hat and stuff and then just i mean you can't beat it you know? no it's a like huge it, smile on your face and 
you couldn't make those net records now like like you just no. couldn't no. Just, I, just, I just don't think you can get the sounds you know we've all got too much baggage now but there's too much technology as well i think it'd yeah. be really hard to go back to that thing and say right we're just going to use a you know these these kind of mics a 16 track machine <clears throat> or even an, oh yeah i tell you an album that is one of my all-time favorites is, is family music in a doll's house okay i've never heard that oh you've got to check it out yeah yeah i'll send you it okay along with the multi-trans man you know what record you would love and i know it's not from the 70s but it's very 70s down and is beck sea change ah have you ever heard that no but somebody dude weeks ago mentioned like it sounds like the like that record sounds for a later kind of record, it's incredible sounding, like fucking incredible sound. His dad brought uh, Campbell did all the like these beautiful orchestral arrangements. It's a really like low key. I think Nigel Godrich produced it. Ah, pretty sure. Yeah. It's how it's a beautiful it's sounding record. Yeah. yeah, you would like that. You would like. I've I've got like a ninety six k version. I'll send it to you. It's yeah. really good. Brilliant. Okay. Really good. Really well, good. on that, on exchanging music over, <laughs> over the internet. Exactly. We friend. shouldn't complain about technology too much. No, no, no. Us going, <laughs> hey, fuck this shit. <laughs> it's good for something. We'll use it's it very good for something, yeah. All right, my friend. Hey, thank you very much for doing this. Not I always, at all, no, I always you. loved you too, my man. I always love chatting to you. Take care. Have man. a good one, brother. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers.